listening to you. All right. Let's turn in our Bibles this evening to uh, the Gospel according to Luke. Chapter 9 is where we uh, left off at the end of chapter 8, beginning chapter uh, 9 this evening, Sunday night, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. In chapter 9, uh, Jesus is now uh, formally heading into um, the final portion of his uh, public ministry, and he is moving progressively now uh, toward the cross. And uh, with the cross, his death, his burial, resurrection, what awaits him in Jerusalem, very much on his heart and on his mind. He will mention it to the disciples a couple times in this chapter alone. And so he sends them out kind of up in the northern area of Israel known as the Galilee. He sends the disciples out once again now uh, to preach the kingdom of God, to give them power to cast out demons and to heal people as a witness to uh, the kingdom of God. And the idea is, of course, that he is going to then follow where it is that they've gone, Jesus then to come in and to preach and do miracles as well. But an awful lot of it is preparation uh, for in their lives for the day that he will no longer be with them, that he will ascend into heaven and uh, and, and then this will, even greater responsibility will fall upon them. And then he called his uh, 12, uh, 12 disciples together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. That's a tremendous uh, anointing that he gives to them, a tremendous power. And then he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And so I never uh, see the kingdom of God mentioned in the Word of God except that it does something very, very good in my heart in terms of gratitude. I am so thankful. I think I've even mentioned it recently on these Sunday nights. So thankful there is another kingdom in this world uh, than the one that we see very much in trouble uh, all around the world, uh, physical kingdom before our eyes. And so they were to preach this spiritual kingdom, access into that spiritual kingdom uh, through faith in Christ, and then he gave them the power to and authority to cast out demons and to heal people as a way of being a witness or a testimony to the truthfulness of the message that they uh, were uh, preaching. And then he said to them, uh, take nothing for the journey as he sends them out, uh, neither staff nor bag uh, nor bread nor money, and do uh, not have two tunics apiece. And so, he sends them out, and he tells them uh, essentially to, to take a step of faith here. They have his calling. They have his anointing. Uh, they won't know that that is really actually the case until they obey his call to now go out into the region and, uh, and then begin to uh, uh, accomplish what he's called them uh, to do. And then they would experience that power. They would then preach that, um, that gospel. But very much at the beginning, they're to take very little with them. There's a lot of people in, uh, in terms of Christian ministry, they spend their whole lives preparing to go out, and they never go out. 
and uh, because they're always kind of adding more things. It gets more and more complicated, more and more cumbersome, and they never quite head out and do what God has called them to do. And so Jesus says, make it simple, just head on out there, and he makes them take a step of faith. And later, you know, to be fair for balance, later on, he will call on them and tell them, go ahead and take money. And, uh, but this will be later on in their ministries, later on in their spiritual development. Right now, he wants them to take a step of faith and then come to experience the fact that God stands behind not only his word, but he stands behind anything that he calls us to do individually in his kingdom. There was a... Um, and I've always appreciated, I don't talk about Calvary Chapel a lot. And the reason that I don't talk about Calvary Chapel as a movement a lot is because I prefer to do it the way that I think is the best, and that is uh, to present the biblical model of Calvary Chapel from the Bible uh, to this community, to this world, to you as a congregation, week in and week out without raising a flag or a banner related to it. But I'm very, very, uh, very, very thankful for my heritage in Calvary Chapel. And I'm very, very thankful for the biblical vision for ministry that's found in the Scriptures and that uh, I, I became steeped in early in my Christian life in Christian ministry. And I'm very thankful for, uh, in line with what we see here, how churches were started in those first and second generation of the Calvary Chapel movement, a move of the Holy Spirit, happened among other churches as well, and uh, I assume is still the characteristic of things even today. But when, when you felt like God was calling you to start a church or to go someplace to plant a church, and Calvary Chapel is a, a church planting a move of the Holy Spirit, you basically had your confidence in that calling and your confidence in that calling. And then you moved to that particular community and it was up to you to find a job or whatever it was going to take uh, in order for the church to get started, but there was no safety net. And uh, I remember seeing a bulletin insert probably a year or two ago where a particular church not in this community was doing a church plant, and uh, the, the bulletin insert for the church uh, stated that they were asking the church for donations for $150,000 for in order to uh, support and send out a husband and wife team into a community in Northern California. And then there were also other requests for uh, money to be no donated in terms of a sound system and all of these other things that uh, are considered to be a, a necessity. And, and that is so, uh, uh, there's one part of me that would have been, loved to have been sent out uh, that way. And I, I'm not saying that God can't start churches that way. I'm just thankful He didn't do it that way with, with me. Because what happens in this thing of, uh, so often when you're uh, supported, or artificially supported, um, you're made too comfortable initially 
for your calling to really be tested and, uh, and to really face the brunt of the hardship of planting a, a church and what goes into it and then what you learn from God. And one of the things that was great, I think, about that church model of planting is uh, you, there, you either built a dependence upon God to survive or you didn't survive. And uh, there, were no, uh, there was no mother church, there was no running to Pastor Chuck or, or anybody else. It was a, uh, a swim or sink uh, on that kind of a thing. And what happens is, is that it gives the Holy Spirit room to make clear whether He is really in this. Not supremely for the sake of the congregation, but supremely for the sake of the man and in other areas of ministry, the woman that he sends out to then do a particular uh, work, and that needs to uh, get uh, uh, sorted out. I think about uh, back in the early days of, of the church here, and I, uh, 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 I remember the first time we were able to buy a, a Shure SM58 microphone. I don't even know if they make those things anymore. But it was a very good microphone for, um, for amplification. And we bought one. And we needed more than one. And then we could buy two. And then we could buy three so the pastor could have one, and then there could be the worship team could have something without sharing the same uh, microphone. I remember when uh, then patching together as thing, if people would come together and patching as a church, patching together our first sound system. I mean, no, you couldn't sell it for anything on eBay, but we were so thrilled to be able to amplify the worship and the teaching uh, into uh, the room. And, and we treasured that system. I remember when we went to, uh, one time we drew, drove a couple trucks to uh, Oakland down in, into the harbor because we had been able to save enough money to buy 60 brown folding chairs at the lowest price and six folding tables and bring them back so people would have a seat to sit in uh, that uh, room that was used as a delicatessen on Leveland and uh, McHenry uh, most of the week, but that we used it on Sunday. And, and then on the Wednesday evenings, and tables then to then buy a coffee maker and put it on there, buy cups. And all of these things were so wonderful to experience and, and happening between us and God that we would have been, I think, robbed of it if it had happened uh, too easily or, or too, uh, too quickly. And, and just the, the blessings of it. You know, they, they use the, the classic example of uh, the butterfly trying to come out of its chrysalis. And um, it's a very tight squeeze. And, uh, and you'll be tempted as you watch it to somehow get a little pair of snips and then just hit that opening a little bit to help it get out. And it, it is the... Uh, it, it will mean the destruction of the butterfly because it is the butterfly moving through the tightness of that opening that pushes all of the fluid down into its wings that will then allow it to fly. And if that, if that process is not allowed, the hardship of it, 
is not allowed, then, uh, then the, 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 it, will not, it will die uh, readily and become a victim of some kind of predator that's looking for a butterfly that can't, can't fly. And so often we want to look at things and just think if we could just make it a little bit easier for them and you can destroy a person's calling. When, when I came here, and, and I'm just going to talk about myself now for an hour here. It's, it's a part of the culture, you know, this, this here. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send pictures on Instagram to all of you too. But uh, I, I want this to be helpful to some of you that feel a calling like this and the different models that are, are being put in, in front of you. And the first winter that Karen and I came to Modesto, uh, the, the sun never came out in December. Not for five minutes, not for one minute. And people were going crazy. They were driving up to Sonora, anywhere they could get up above the layer and see it. I had never seen anything like that in my life. And, uh, and, uh, but having come now to Modesto, having resigned from a very, very go good job, at least a dependable job and a good job, with the phone company in the middle of a recession, and I come here to Modesto, and they're hiring off in my job title uh, up to 20 years seniority. I only had 10 years. That I couldn't pick up uh, work here. And I would take these long walks in the evening and in just the gloom of the winter, and I would just beg God to give me my job back. And I would, I would tell him, Lord, I, I will, if you'll do that, um, I, will, I will go back to just being a deacon or a servant in any local church you want to put me in. You'll never hear a peep from me again about being uh, a, a pastor at all. Uh, I'll keep my head down and, and I will serve you uh, uh, there. And what happened there wasn't just the physical whatever related to anything. I got hit with a wave of discouragement in those early days that I can't even put into words. And the, and the devil uses discouragement very, very powerfully. And it was a very long, hard winter. In fact, the first two years was a very long, well, it's been 35 years of being long and hard. Wonderful, but hard. And, uh, but so thankful that it forced me to God in a way that no other model would have quite uh, done. And it forced me to, uh, to conclude between God and I whether He had really called me or not, and then to simply take a step of faith and to see what He would do with that. And in His grace and His goodness that we sang about today, uh, the church uh, was able to survive, and it continued, and, and it, it thrived. I remember one time we were... Um, uh, I was taking a trip uh, over to, uh, uh, first trip to India with Gail Irwin. And there were several other men that were on that trip as well. And before we got to India, uh, I think it was in Frankfurt that we stopped on the way over there, Gail made it clear to all of us that we were not to give anyone we met, not a penny, not any money. And if anyone tried to... Uh, get us a, an address or a telephone number for us so they could just call us or write to us and tell us a little bit about their ministry uh, and all in order to stay in contact. We were to, de to 
decline to give that information to them and, and then direct them to make contact with their ministry covering there in, in India. And Gail told us that when you get off that plane and who you're going to be in front of virtually the entire three weeks of the trip are you're going to be in front of uh, uh, men that believe that they have a calling upon their lives to be uh, pastors. And when they look at you coming from the United States, even middle-class United States, they will view you as the solution to every problem they have in their life. And, and he said, if you, in terms of meeting their, their material needs, and he said, if you allow them to build a dependence upon you in this early critical stage within their ministry, uh, then you will corrupt them. You will introduce a corruption into their uh, lives and you will kill their ministries right at the outset. And Gail gave us a lesson on the power of money to corrupt in uh, Christian ministry. And I've never forgotten that word uh, from him. And I think it's a thing that all of us as parents that uh, we can face, especially if uh, we're a little bit later in life and maybe finally we got, uh, instead of having uh, two nickels to rub together when we were raising our kids, now we've got two quarters uh, to rub together. And we see the problems that they will go through life or the problems that they might have early in a marriage or in a job or all of these things. And now we have the wisdom or we have the resources to bail them out of that situation, to make it easy for them. And, and uh, the reminder that we can corrupt everything that God is trying to do and accomplish by stepping in in that way. And it's one of the hardest things that a parent will ever have to do is to sit back and watch their child suffer and go through great difficulty in order for a faith to be built, character to be built that is going to need to be built in their lives for them to survive when you could bail them out in five minutes. And that's why it's so important in, in concerning the church too. There's so many needs and so many things and people go out from here or whatever and uh, we could support them uh, completely in, in going out. And yet we don't do that in that way because we can, get in the, we can rob them of this experience. Of course, we take things to the Lord in prayer. What do you want us to do and how do you want us to help if you want us to do something, something here? And, and, uh, but but the, the, uh, the capacity of money or ease to corrupt a calling right at its, at its uh, onset or to corrupt a life right at the beginning of its adult life, and it causes us to pull back and say, Lord, I could take care of this problem on my own in this person's life or in this person that thinks they have this call upon their life but I could very readily spoil what you were doing, and then now you'll have to put us in the doghouse in order to get us out of the way and continue what you're trying to do in his life. And so uh, don't, uh, don't uh, uh, allow us to, uh, uh, to mar things in, in that, that way. If God chooses to take you out in, in that kind of a way, I, I shudder to think 
When I, when I look at the, the early days and all of the days of, of serving the Lord, but especially those early days, um, I shudder to think at what I would have never learned uh, if this hadn't been the path, the kind of path that Jesus is putting on here for, for these disciples for the very same reason, to develop their faith and their dependence upon God for the day when, when uh, greater things will be expected of them. And so he said, whatever house you enter, uh, stay there, and from there uh, depart. So when you go into a city, of course, uh, the miracles and the deliverances that they would do, be doing would obviously produce uh, many, many invitations for them to come and stay in a home. And once you were invited into a home, during the duration of your stay, you were to stay there. Even if somebody said, what are you staying here in this uh, 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 place? I've got a home up on the top of the hill and, and all, and, and uh, come on up there. And, and the Lord says, stay there. Because I don't want people thinking that Christians in, in ministry, that the whole idea is an addiction to comfort or that they're looking for the next best uh, uh, offer that will mar the ministry and the message. And whatever and whoever will not receive you when you go out from that city, uh, shake off uh, the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Wow. So you can imagine them, they're rejected, uh, even their mi miracles, deliverances of people by demons, and their message of the kingdom of God is rejected. God says, go to the edge of the city when you leave. Don't even take uh, the, the, the dust uh, 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 with you as you leave them as kind of a sign or a mark of uh, disapproval in order to drive home to them the seriousness of their rejection of Jesus Christ and of the message that he was going to bring. Now, this comes some kind of strength. They talk about a kind of snowflakeism today a little bit. And uh, you look at these disciples. We're, talk we're not talking about a city that threw a parade for them when they came and when they left. This is a city that has rejected them. And they go to the edge of the city and visibly wipe the dust off of their feet to drive home the seriousness of the decision that they have uh, made and the seriousness of rejecting God's kingdom and, and his salvation. When I have a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness uh, come to my doorstep, and uh, um, I, I'm always eager to talk uh, with them, um, I, uh, most of the time I'm able to if I'm there, and, um, but sometimes I'm caught, I just don't have the time to do it, but I like to do that. But we never get to the end of the conversation, and they've told me their thing, and I've told them how, uh, 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 what the Scriptures have to say uh, about salvation, and it's not of works, and it's a gift from God, and, and uh, I'm a born-again Christian, I'm a whosoever that is on my way to heaven, based upon John 3.16. And when the conversation is over, um, I never say, hey, God bless you. I mean, uh, we all see things a little bit differently, don't we? I mean, you see it your way, I see it my way, but group hug, okay, uh, on this. No way to do that. 
And I never want to send them away in, in the spirit of this with the idea that their rejection of salvation based solely upon God's uh, grace and faith in Jesus Christ and, and, and uh, what, what, I, what the Bible actually teaches on this is some kind of a small issue and we can all part ways cordially. I am polite. I am loving uh, to people. But they never leave my doorstep thinking all of us are on the same page. You're just doing it your way and I'm doing it uh, uh, my way. And Paul is, uh, Jesus here is telling the disciples that you need to do this so people do not realize, so that they realize this is not a game. This is not a game. This is the most serious decision they will make in life. And you need to drive that uh, home, not only by your words, but also uh, by your actions. Again, not out of arrogance, not out of pride, but so they are left with uh, a sobriety about the decision that, that they have made. And so they departed, and they went through the towns preaching uh, the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, Herod the Tetrarch, he heard uh, uh, of all that was done uh, by him, that is, by Jesus, and he was perplexed because some people were saying uh, that uh, Jesus was actually John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Others were saying that uh, Elijah had uh, come back and appeared, and others were saying that uh, he was one of the uh, old prophets that had risen again. And Herod, because of his guilty conscience, you remember he had beheaded uh, John the Baptist for confronting him over the uh, immorality and unrighteousness of his relationship with Herodias, his, his brother's uh, uh, wife. Uh, Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And so he sought to see Jesus. And uh, ultimately, he would see Jesus, and uh, when Jesus stood before him, uh, it was uh, like a game uh, to Herod, and Jesus would not speak uh, anything to him. And the apostles, when they had returned, they told him all that they uh, had done. And then notice what, what he did, is he took them and he went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. So they've been, they've been redlining for a while. And, uh, and, you, and you type A's need to understand that. We type A's. Uh, is that you can't run in fifth gear all the time. And, and there is uh, needed times of decompressing related to the demands of ministry. Jesus himself initiates it. Uh, they didn't say, hey, how, where does a guy get a break around here? Uh, but they, he's the one that initiated. Let's go aside and uh, uh, decompress here a little bit and have some time together and, and recover. But when the multitudes knew where they were, they followed Jesus, and uh, he said, wow, where, where can a guy get uh, you know, some relief here from all these crowds? He, didn't, he said he received them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who had need of healing. The heart of Jesus so beautiful in his... Uh, contact, his, 
contact with need. We've even, we even sang it in a couple of the songs here, here tonight. And, and uh, wouldn't it be terrible if, if we saw a picture within the Scriptures where someone who really wanted to hear Him really had a need in their life that He could meet, uh, that uh, they would hit a slam door, but it was never, never that, uh, that case. And when the day began to, to wear away, as he's ministering to uh, the crowd, probably about about three in the afternoon. Uh, here, this is going to be a, a, the Jesus's miracle of the feeding of the five thousand. It's interesting that uh, other than Jesus' resurrection from the dead, this is the only other miracle that is recorded in all four of the gospels. So it means that no matter which gospel we read, God wants us to come into contact with the lesson of what it is that happens here. And so the day began to wear away again about three in the afternoon, and the twelve uh, disciples, the apostles, they came and they said to him, so uh, they're going to uh, counsel Jesus. Uh, and so they said, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and uh, country and lodge and get provisions uh, for uh, we are in a deserted place here. And, and so uh, this tells us that a significant portion of the crowd was not local. They had traveled some distance to uh, encounter Jesus and to dismiss them at three o'clock in the afternoon um, with insufficient uh, places to find to eat or to lodge uh, wouldn't have been appropriate. Even the, even the disciples understood that. But their solution uh, was send them away uh, 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 early enough that at least they can get a shot at, at finding food and, and uh, shelter. So Jesus then uh, said to them, you give them something to eat. Now, if you're going to counsel God, uh, I hope I hope someone else has done that in the course of their Christian life other than me. Hey, God, I've, I've got a bright idea right here. I think you're kind of missing this. And uh, have you ever thought about, in fact, they go beyond that. They, they tell him to do this. So Jesus responds with his own question. And, uh, and he said, uh, you give them uh, something uh, to eat. And uh, then they said to him, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, and unless we go and buy food, uh, uh, unless we go and buy food for these people, all, all we've got is the five loaves, the two fish. If you want to send us out to try and, and uh, beat the bushes to try and find enough food to feed them, then, then we'd be, uh, you know, willing to, uh, to do that. And uh, they see the, the, the inadequacy of their resources for what God, uh, Jesus, has called them to do. For there were about 5,000 men. Oh, okay. Um, we just had Thanksgiving, didn't we? And uh, we had, um, what was the lawful number to have gathered? <laughs> this is being recorded. I don't want to be arrested in the night, but I think we had eight people at the house, and, um, and so, uh, but they were family. Does that count? <laughs> so, 
I mean, what would five little, they were not actually loaves, they were buns, basically. That's what a loaf was in those days. Five little buns and, and uh, two fish. It wouldn't, wouldn't have fed uh, uh, that group at Thanksgiving. Wouldn't have fed uh, any of the men around the table, candidly. And, uh, and, and so completely inadequate for 5,000 uh, people that are there. It, it uh, specifically speaks to the fact that there are men, so there are probably women and then children as well, so uh, probably between uh, 10 and 15,000 people all told. And, and, uh, and then he said to the disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And so they did so and made them all sit down. And then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them, and he gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. Isn't that interesting here in this, that, uh, and it's a principle that we, we see so often in the Lord, where Jesus here does what he alone can do, and that is to multiply the fish and the loaves. But he then causes the disciples to do what they can do, and that is to deliver the, the food to the multitude. And the Lord will always in our lives do what he alone can do, but he was not, is not always compelled to do what he knows we're fully capable of. That would be to um, disciple and produce a very... Um, inadequate child or a child of God. And, and he, he produces strong uh, children in his, his kingdom. And, and so they, they did it. They uh, passed that, uh, the, as Jesus multiplied it, he blessed, and then uh, passed the, uh, the disciples took it before the multitude, and so they all ate and they were filled. And that word filled means to be glutted. Again, the timing is great with Thanksgiving. It is to mean nobody could take one more bite. That's how full uh, they, they were. Then they brought the dessert out. Uh, and they only thought they were full. But no, these, they were absolutely glutted. And, and how we know that they were so full they couldn't eat anymore is that 12 baskets of leftover fragments were taken up then by them. There was leftover. Everybody couldn't eat anymore. Thousands of people. And, you know, and I always like the fact that Jesus, in terms of just stewardship, what is modeled here. He could just look at that and say, I could do a miracle like this every minute. We don't have to spend the time uh, the disciples are going to spend on uh, collecting up all the leftovers of this particular miracle, but he has them do it because he doesn't waste. He doesn't waste. And if he doesn't waste the remnants of five loaves and two fishes, then he will not waste anything associated with our lives. He just does not waste. The thing that he does with the disciples here in terms of, of the great uh, lesson that is, is here uh, for us is that he simply asked the disciples to bring uh, what it is that uh, they had in the form of the two lo uh, loaves and fish to put it in, into uh, his hands, and then he performed the miracle. And this is a, a really important ministry and Christian uh, life uh, lesson. 
You and I serve the Lord in a world where the needs are so immense. Uh, And I don't know anybody who is being used by God in any way, even in ways that would boggle your mind in terms of people coming to Christ and international ministries that wouldn't tell you that for all that we're doing, it's like a drop in the bucket compared to the need. But that's not your problem. And that's not their problem. And that's not my problem. All we're responsible for is to take the little bit that we are, the little bit that we have, and put it in God's hands, and then it's up to Him to multiply it in whatever way He chooses then to meet the, the needs that He sees within the world. And that's all that happens in this church And, uh, you know, we look and we say, okay, here we are, Calvary Chapel Modesto, and and here we are all these years later, and we're doing what we're doing and all. But anybody could look at it on the pastoral staff or anyone look at it and say, what difference are we making? I mean, really, even in Modesto, in terms of of the greatness of the need that, that is all around, the collapse of the culture and society all around us, that's not our problem. Our problem is to be what God has called us to be in the place that He has called us to be that, and then it's up to Him to take care of the big picture, the 5,000, the 10,000, the 15,000. And that takes a whole uh, load off of our shoulders because we can do that. We can meet the need of the 5,000 men, but we can do this. And that's all he calls us uh, to, uh, to do. And, and, uh, uh, and so we come to the end of that, that particular uh, uh, event. Picking things up in verse 18. And it happened as uh, he, Jesus, was alone praying. Uh, that his disciples then joined him. This is in the area of Caesarea Philippi. We know from the other Gospels. And Jesus asked them a question, and he said, Who do the crowds say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Now, he poses two questions in this, uh, this passage, and that's the first of the questions. Uh, who do people say that I am? What are the opinions about me that are kind of on the street? What are you hearing about the conclusions that people are coming to about who I am? Well, they didn't need to <laughs> any time to think, can you give me five minutes or a day to think that through? Their answer was immediately on their lips. And so they answered and they said, uh, some people think you're John the Baptist, obviously raised from the dead. But others think that you're Elijah, the great miracle worker uh, from the Old Testament come back. Others say that you're one of the old uh, uh, prophets that has risen again, like Isaiah or Jeremiah, and now come to preach this uh, message of righteousness and turning uh, to God. That's the word on the street. That's what the crowds are saying about you. And then Jesus comes to the second question, which is the most important one, where he makes it personal. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
And that, it doesn't matter what the crowd or anybody else thinks of who Jesus is. What really matters is who do I say that he is. So it's kind of weird, isn't it? Why the two questions? Why didn't he just cut to the chase and say, who do you say that I am? And Peter's going to give the right answer here in just a moment. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he doesn't do that. He asked them, first of all, what are people saying about me? And I'm convinced that he asked the first question about what people are saying about him on the street and then hearing all of these different opinions in order to make the point that the conclusion that we will come to about Jesus Christ, a true conclusion about him, we will need to come to in the middle of a world filled with varying opinions about Christ. And, uh, and that we will come to put our faith in him as the Christ, uh, the son of the living God in the midst of a world that considers him merely to be a great moral teacher or a great uh, uh, miracle worker or a great uh, uh, moral example to mankind. And these are the limitations that they, they place upon him. And so not only uh, must we uh, come to a proper conclusion concerning who Jesus is in the face of lots of wrong opinions, but we then must uh, continue in our right conclusion concerning him in a world that continues in all of their wrong conclusions. And so uh, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. It's a contraction of, uh, of what another gospel uh, puts there. And then Jesus strictly warned and commanded uh, them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer uh, many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So he uses it as a teachable moment here uh, for them, and he uh, begins now to prepare them for the great difficulty that he is going to face there uh, in, uh, as they uh, are making their way now formally toward uh, Jerusalem. That uh, he, Jesus is telling you he's going to suffer many things. Uh, Matthew's gospel tells us that he mentioned Jerusalem specifically as the, the site for all of this. He'll be rejected astonishingly by the religious leaders uh, of, uh, of the Jews and then uh, far more than just being persecuted or rejected or resisted that that persecution will go to the point uh, of death, but he will be raised then on uh, the third day. And so he, he informs them of this is what is ahead for him and obviously what they will be a witness to as as well. It is interesting when we, to realize so often when we find ourselves in, in difficult places in, in life that, uh, that we can sometimes look back and see how God had been preparing us all along for uh, what was coming. And even with that preparation, we didn't quite take it that seriously, and the disciples didn't, and they ended up uh, scattering in all directions. 
And, and knowing that uh, all of this hardship was coming, Jesus here in verse 23, He uh, instructs them about three things that are going to be required in order to be a disciple of His, to be a follower uh, uh, of His in, in, in all of this. And He said, if uh, anyone desires to come after Me, to follow Me, to be a, a, dis a disciple, let him deny himself, number one. And what is required is to deny, uh, again, as we looked in the other Gospels, not to deny ourselves something, but to deny the whole self-mindset that my life is more important uh, to me to manage and control than it is to turn it over to God. And there has to be a willingness to deny myself and what I might want to do and where I might want to go when God calls me to do something that is contrary uh, to that. Because where self will take me in life and where Jesus wants to take me in life, two entirely different things. So if anyone desires to come after me, number one, let him deny himself. And then he needs to uh, take up his uh, cross uh, daily. And uh, what the cross represented in the life of Jesus was this full, unqualified surrender to the Father for his purposes for Jesus' life. And the same call is made uh, upon us. I, I forget how it goes, but I've heard it a number of times through the years, and it's always helpful when it comes back to me, because when it comes back to me, even though I can't remember it correctly, I remember enough of it to, anyway, enough about my problems here. But they, they do talk about how we're wanting a Christianity where uh, Christ does all of uh, the self-denial. He does, he does all of the dying. He is the only one uh, that gets crucified and, uh, and somehow become like Him uh, in, in being conformed by the Spirit, but never being willing to have those things happen uh, in our lives. And it is possible. Here I've got this Savior, uh, the, the Christ, the Son of the living God that I worship and I claim to worship. And, uh, but in terms of any crucifixion in my life, the only crucifixion about my Christian life is the crucifixion He went through. There's no crucifixion in me. There's no denial of self in, in me. And Jesus is clearly saying, uh, this isn't just about your Savior, but it's to be about us as the body of Christ. And then uh, to uh, follow Him, to allow Him to lead us and to, to direct us in our lives. And then He gives us three exhortations or encouragements, because that's a very strong demand that He makes there in, in verse 23. And He says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So this is a funny thing where you look at where... Um, doesn't the average non-Christian think you're absolutely wasting your life? What a sad thing that he or she has committed uh, their uh, life to. And, and they can't understand uh, the difference between existence and, and life. We were created for relationship with God. Nobody experiences true life in life until we are engaged in that relationship. 
and then following him in the way that he tells us to follow him in verse 23. We are the one who are living life and everybody else, is, it, it is mere existence. And there is a very great difference between uh, life and mere existence. And I mean mere existence, you walk around town or you walk around all different places that are, is like zombie land. I was thinking about Thanksgiving, and here we have um, uh, Thanksgiving, a holiday that is made a national holiday. They don't just give us one day off, but they give us two days off, uh, generally within our culture, in order for time to be thankful and thankful to God for all of His blessings. And I said, and I thought to myself this last week, I wonder what percentage of the population of the United States of America will sit down and eat that meal and forget to give thanks for anything, for one single thing in their life, though a whole holiday has been given uh, over to it. I'm not, I'm not even saying giving thanks to God for anything, just being thankful, period, for the blessings in, in life. And, and so the, the, the great difference, if you want to save our life, we'll lose it. In other words, we will make His plan for our lives preeminent. Uh, and whoever loses his life for my sake uh, will uh, save it. It certainly speaks about ministry, life after being saved, and then also in terms of, uh, of salvation. He said, for... Uh, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? That's a great question, isn't it? You know, Jesus is asking questions that nobody's asking. If you don't open up, if you don't open up the Bible as uh, a human being, we're not being challenged by questions in life that uh, are demanding, that ought to be considered. And so he asks the question, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Now think about that. We're not just talking about uh, Bill Gates or talking about Bezos or, or all of the other uh, uh, billionaires, Musk. Uh, and uh, uh, talk about a guy that has leveraged government loans into, I want to know where that trough is. Uh, uh, to become a billionaire off of. And I'm sure he's a, he is a, a creative and an entrepreneurial ge uh, genius on, on things. But, but we're talking about somebody who would have the potential to uh, own and possess the entire world. And, uh, and what good would it be if he himself uh, is destroyed or lost in terms of eternity? And here you have Jesus revealing... Uh, the value of a human soul. The value of a human soul. If an individual human being were to be able to gain the entire world and have it be put at their feet, and the price that was required was the forfeiture of their soul and end up eternity in, in judgment, they have made the worst bargain that a person can, could ever make. 
I think it's good to, to realize, and I think again we become Christians and then we look back on things that we didn't understand and how God understood the value of our soul long before uh, we ever did. It's more valuable than all of the world uh, put together. For uh, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, uh, of him the Son of Man shall be ashamed. So he gives the warning, don't let uh, material comforts be something that draws you away uh, from God's call. And here, uh, the warning against being ashamed of him. He says, if we're ashamed of him uh, in this life, he will then uh, be ashamed uh, of, uh, of us uh, when, uh, when he comes. And, and so, the importance of not being ashamed. I, I, I'm not ashamed of him. I, I, I marvel that he made me a part of his family and not ashamed of me. And when, when he comes in his own glory and in his, uh, in his Father's uh, and the, uh, of the holy mountain, and so, uh, or, or, uh, and of the whole, I'll tell you what. Let me start over again. Verse 26. Not preaching, but I'm going to get this right before we close here tonight. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's glory and of the holy angels. And so here you have this um, hint, uh, this little taste, this little reminder of the fact that for how ever hard things are in this life, that for the child of God, all of it ends up in glory. It all ends up in, uh, in the glory of heaven. And so we will stop there tonight and uh, let's stand together in prayer, uh, pray together and ask the worship team to come out and prepare to close us up in a worship song. Father, thank you so much as we close the teaching part of the service for this time uh, in your word and this broad cross-section of things that we have looked at this evening. Thank you that your word uh, never returns void, but it's always accomplishing and doing something good within our lives. And we thank you for the good that these verses have done in our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength uh, this evening. We are so thankful as we look at this teaching, Jesus, and so thankful to know you, so thankful for the sacrifice that you were willing to make in order for us to be saved. And as we see these um, demands of discipleship that you place uh, upon us, Lord, we pray that you give us the grace to uh, step out in them. We pray that you would make manifest in a, a greater way both the power to do and the will to do of your good pleasure. Keep us growing, we pray, in our relationship with you. And we pray these things in your name, in Jesus' name, amen.